The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Good morning, and thanks again for joining us on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, Later on the show, I interview a British photojournalist, writer, and activist, Russell Pollard, here in the studio with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good Monday morning, Ricky. Good morning, Vic. Good morning, everyone listening. This heat is ridiculous. Yes, 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 yes. So everyone in LA, we need to stick together this week. It's going to be a scorcher, like Monday through Friday. Yeah, I was was reading that even parts of like uh, Siberia, are experiencing the warmest climate they've ever had, which is not a surprise. It's not news. And uh, how bad things are in like Southern Europe right now. There's like some massive heat wave there. It's hitting Greece and Italy uh, and Spain. Uh, I don't I do not do well in heat. I, I like colder climates, which begs the question, what am I doing in LA? It's because I love everything else about LA, except for the traffic. But I digress. Well, you know what? I'm curious, Vic, you've been to... You've been to Armenia a few times now. What's what's the climate like in Armenia? Yes, Armenia is uh, has full four seasons. Uh, it's a very um, high altitude nation. Like at the lowest altitude, you're at five thousand feet above sea level, and then it goes up from there. Uh, so winters are very cold. It snows and all of that. They have beautiful springs with you know uh, all the fruit trees blooming. Fall is absolutely stunning uh, with orange and yellows and browns all over the place. Uh, And the summers are really hot um, and like really, really hot. And because of high altitude, when you go to like sightseeing and things and you are, let's say you're at a historical site, the sun feels like it's like, like you can touch it. It's like so close to you. And within like 45 minutes, you get burnt on your shoulders. I mean, me, because I'm always wearing a tank top uh, when I go sightseeing. So it's, um, yeah, summers are pretty hot and I try not to go in the summer. I I generally don't enjoy traveling in the summer because it's just too hot and too crowded. I like like fall and early spring. Oh, so just two things. Yeah, so I know that the heat is actually affecting tourism in Rome, uh, like they are shutting down yeah. uh, some of the hot spots for tourists. And the other thing I wanted to say quick before you, you know, get into some serious stuff. Uh, for those listening, obviously radio can't see our faces here in the studio, but Vic wears a tank top all the time because he's ripped. Uh, uh, so I just wanted to th- wanted to throw that nugget out. All right, go ahead. Wow. Well, um, I don't know what to say. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do wear polo shirts and regular shirts when I'm, uh, you know, meeting with members of Congress or have a formal interview. But um, yes. you're right. I live in my I live in my tank top because I just I can't handle heat. Uh, but anyways, let's talk about uh, President Biden's determination to have, you know, to to create forgiveness for student loans, 
and this latest, um, well, setback, I would say, with the Supreme Court. I know you've been uh, doing your homework on that, Ricky. Yeah, so kudos to President Biden. Despite the Supreme Court uh, last month striking down his promise to forgive student uh, loan debt, the loan forgiveness program he was talking about uh, would have provided millions of borrowers up to 20 grand in a one-time federal student debt relief. But I say kudos to Biden because the Supreme Court ruling has not deterred him uh, whatsoever. He and the administration have promised to pursue different avenues to cancel the debt. And it looks like they've uh, found one. I got a quote from, from Biden I want to read. Quote, I'm never going to stop fighting for you. We'll use every tool at our disposal to get you the student debt relief you need and reach your dreams. It's good for the economy. It's good for the country. Uh, he said this after the Supreme Court ruling. So he's gotten into a little bit of some of the plan. Uh, he's going to the plan is going to be called SAVE. Um, it's an acronym, Saving on Valuable Education. So basically, uh, because of the Supreme Court ruling striking down his uh, original plan, uh, this new plan, the administration is saying it's a pathway that's going to require formal rulemaking processes, which can take months. And the details, they haven't been announced. Basically, like I said uh, just a minute ago, it's, it's a different avenue that his administration will be executing to keep this promise. Again, kudos to Biden and his perseverance uh, to the administration. Yeah, well, this was a this was a big promise he made um, as a candidate and nominee. So I'm glad that uh, he's keeping his promise. Uh, let's hope that those in L.A. who are, uh, well, not just L.A., but throughout the nation, but mostly in L.A., New York, who are on strike, have someone uh, fighting for them like that. Um, for those of you who are, uh, you know, maybe not sort of don't have the latest news on what's happening with the Screen Actors Guild and after a strike, essentially 160,000 actors who are members of the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA uh, are striking. Uh, they're actually joining 11,000 writers from the Writers Guild of America who've been on strike uh, for, for a while. Uh, it's actually the first time in 63 years that both unions uh, have been on strike together. And the strike is because of contract. Uh, the contract that uh, Screen Actors Guild AFTRA had with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers expired. Now, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is a, a group that represents the studios. And so basically this is about pay. A lot of actors are not making what they used to. They're not making living wage. And with, a, with streaming and different ways that studios and networks are, are cashing in, uh, actors are saying, we need, we need our residuals on that. We need to be a part of that. Um, and this is why they went on strike. I, I completely support uh, Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America. And I want to read a quote from the president of Screen Actors Guild, uh, actress Fran Drescher, uh, who summed up the reasons uh, for this strike uh, during a press conference. 
She said, and I quote, we are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I'm shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that, the, that they're losing money left and right while giving hundreds and millions of dollars to their CEOs. Uh, it's disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history uh, at this very moment. Uh, and how true is that? I mean, you know, C-suite you know, level executives are making seven-figure salaries. Um, shareholders are uh, making extraordinary amounts. And uh, writers are just getting a raw deal. And I want to... Uh, give you some stats. They're a little bit old, but they still are pretty close. You know, SAC has 160,000 members. 92% of them are unemployed at any given time. From the 8% that are employed, 96% of them are making less than uh, poverty, uh, poverty wages. So, you know, when we talk about actors... Um, you know, being wealthy and this and that, we're really talking about tiny, tiny percentage, less than a 1% uh, of, of the name of people who are consistently working and are at the top. Uh, most are not making uh, anywhere close to um, that top 1%. So there it is. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Of course, this, this hurts the, the SoCal economy. Uh, in many different ways, uh, but you know they they had to do what they had to do because they have families, they have homes, they have expenses, uh, and this uh, needed to be done. Totally, and I hope that this teaming up by uh, both unions sets a fire under these uh, loser executives. Well, yeah, and let's hope that uh, it's resolved quickly. Before, you know, before, because the people who are going to be hurt most are, again, uh, the actors and the writers. But I salute their courage for doing this. Anyway, so moving on, I was I was just kind of, you know, I've just been reading about um, L.A. City Council and City Hall and all the different different scandals that that have hit um, City Council in the last six months to a year. Um, and I thought I'd just sort of summarize it for listeners because, you know, we we want to cover as much uh, of SoCal um, as we can. Uh, and I'm really doing this because I feel like new blood is needed in City Hall. Um, some of the career politicians, some of the gatekeepers got to go. Let's start from the most recent, which is... Uh, uh, council member uh, Kern Price was charged this, this past Tuesday with multiple counts of embezzlement, perjury, and conflict of interest. So that just happened like last week. Then last year in October, most of you know about the leaked uh, audio recording, which was uh, during a closed door meeting with council members, um, including the president of uh, city council. Uh, Nuri Martinez, or then president, uh, discussing uh, cities redistricting uh, while they shared a lot of racist and homophobic comments. Council member and, and president then 
Martinez made the disparaging comments about uh, a white council member's adopted son. Also, Ron Herrera, who was then the president of LA County Federation of Labor, was also present at this. He's since resigned. Going back before that, in 2021, we had uh, council member Mark Ridley uh, Thomas was indicted in, uh, well, along with a former USC dean uh, on charges that he took bribes from the dean in exchange for directing millions of public funding to the university. All right. So that, that was it. That's just just kind of like the there are things that happened prior to that, too, including the current president, who is the Paul Kikorian. Uh, some of the some of the things that he's been accused of. Uh, so what does this say about our um, our city council? Not to say that they're all like that, but I feel like we just need like a shake up. We need we need like uh, the old guard to be shaken up and for new blood to come in who who are a lot more uh, dedicated to improving the city and their neighborhoods, whatever district they're from. So um yeah, that's it. We're going to take a break soon. But before we go, just want to let you know, after the break, you're going to hear my interview with British photojournalist, uh, writer and activist, uh, Russell Pollard. It's a very in- interesting interview. So uh, stay tuned. The Blunt Post with Vic. Patty Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power. Blunt Post with Vic. Russell Pollard is an English photojournalist, writer, and an activist. Uh, Russell has been an advocate for the Armenians and Artsakh, formerly known by its Soviet name, Nagorno-Karabakh, for many years. He was instrumental in getting his native city of Derby to formally recognize the Armenian genocide, despite Great Britain's refusal to do so. He was awarded a medal by the Prime Minister of Artsakh and subsequently was declared persona non grata by Azerbaijan. Good morning, Russell. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning. At least this morning for us, it's nighttime in London. How are you today? I'm not fine. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Um, you are in London, correct? Uh, well, no, I'm actually in a, a city called Derby, which is in the middle of England. So that's right, because that's, uh, that's where everything happened. So oh, of I just wasn't sure where you were now. I've said this to you before, and I'm I'm just fascinated when I meet uh, a non-Armenian who's been uh, so involved and instrumental in bringing awareness uh, to something that, uh, for the most part, the world has just chosen to ignore once again. It's unfathomable how world media uh, picks and chooses whose suffering is important enough to cover. Um, But your involvement with Armenia and Artsakh um, goes back or way back 
you've been to Artsakh over 15 times in Armenia. You know, you have tight relationships and friends with people there. And of course, uh, reading some of the editorial that you've written, uh, they're so poignant, so precise and blunt. It brings it all back. And of course, uh, we're still living it. You know, in a way, Armenians have not been able to exhale for almost three years now. So first, let's just ask you, what's your perspective on what's happening right now? You know, it's one of great um, sadness, I suppose. And I'm, and I'm, like a lot of people, feeling quite empty, I suppose. I mean, it's very difficult to describe the emotions because, as you rightly say, I'm very close to people who live there still, who lived there previously. And having visited on many occasions, you know, you, you kind of get that feeling of being part of something. And even, you know, my emotions are nothing compared to those people who've lost their homes, which I'm very sort of mindful of, that I'm comfortable back here. But to watch as each day goes past, so from the end of November 20, the way that Azerbaijan is sort of slowly but surely secured its position within Artsakh from the point of view of building roads, airports, having these sort of debates about the borders um, and sort of chipping away. And I also know that within Artsakh itself, obviously they've got a fairly strong vantage point with being in Shushi, so a lot of intimidation of people through the phone, through bullet fire across, uh, you know, into the air sort of thing. So constantly trying to drive people to take that active decision to leave. That seems to be what it's all about. And, you know, the most recent pictures you see of the border checkpoint being set up and then you're thinking about the people that you know who are living in Stepanaka particularly who you know every day is uncertain because every day there seems to be something new that's happening and their position of being sort of being in prison somehow and having to negotiate presumably if this step stays negotiate a checkpoint run by Azerbaijani officials who clearly don't have a sympathetic view towards people who are moving backwards and forwards. So, yeah, it's really quite upsetting to kind of see it happening and to know that um, how it must feel for people over there. And having been there so many times when, even though it was always in a very difficult situation, there was always there was always that feeling of so much hope. You know, it was an independent, as far as I was concerned, yeah, a lot of independence, a lot of hope, a lot of young people, looking at way they could um, develop themselves and now all that hope has kind of been taken away from them. So it's a really, really quite upsetting to to see it and to contemplate how people are, are dealing with it. Yeah, you wrapped it up uh, pretty well. Uh, it's important to uh, for people to realize that you are a very well-respected individual as a non-Armenian ally in Artsakh. You've received a very prestigious medal from the prime minister of Artsakh so a lot of people, you know, are very hopeful or have been at least that non-Armenians would speak up for them for people who don't have a voice. And you've certainly done that. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard, who has been telling us about his experiences in Artsakh formerly known as Nagar Nagarabagh and Armenia, as well as 
Britain. Let's go back to well. Let me just let me let, let me stick with Artsakh for for a minute. You said um, uh, that the liberation of Shushi in '92 was a significant turning point in the first war in Artsakh, and the fall, uh, 28 years later, uh, sealed the fate of the republic. Do you think that it's over? Well, I hate to be too fatalistic, but I, I would struggle to see how how it's going to come back from this. And I say that as somebody who's you know done a lot of work in support of the independence of Artsakh, but you know, with Shushi is a very very kind of strategically, you know, geographically and strategically strong position. And yeah, that great hope. But one of the first visits I made into Artsakh in 2012. So that was a, a kind of with with a whole load of youth, young people. We uh, we we walked the various routes that the army went along. In fact, we were guided by some of the original commanders who did it in 1992. So the 30th, sorry, the 20th anniversary. And so you get a sense of the occasion, sense of of having achieved something. And then once that was been had been taken, then that's where that sort of hope really bred started. But I remember as indeed many people will do, those um, reading articles or particular kind of Twitter accounts of where the Azerbaijani forces were relative to Shushi. And it seemed to be taking a long time for them to get from Hajrut to Shushi and they were by Karintak and so on. And then I remember everybody questioning the reports from the, I think he was like the PR guy that the uh, president at the time was saying that the Azeris had taken Shushi and they said this must be a fake account, This must, somebody must have hacked his account because it was just beyond belief that, that had taken place, that it was impossible that the Armenians could lose Shushi um, and of course it was true and by that point, and I think that was the point when the various sort of political Senior then said, this is when they kind of bailed out, really, and said, this is just enough. Because I guess at that point, had they not taken that position, then it would they would have just carried on through to Stepanakos. Um, and, and therefore, the whole of Karabakh would have been under direct Azeri control, would have been my estimation. Aside from, aside from being instrumental in getting the city of Derby to recognize the Armenian genocide in 2018. You also, uh, in the middle of the invasion, I, I don't call it a war because I think it was a genocidal invasion mm. and ethnic cleansing, but even in the middle of that, you also got Derby to recognize the independent Republic of Artsakh. Is there any hope that, um, you know, we can continue to push for this and, and save Artsakh, at least for uh, what's left of it? Well, I guess there's always got to be hope, but I, I just think it requires some fairly significant and cohesive international effort to do it. And and I don't know where that's coming from. I really don't know where that's coming from. I mean, the UK, for example, bluntly is not remotely interested. There's no way the UK is going to have that kind of debate. No, UK is interested in Azerbaijani oil. Yes, fundamentally. So, uh, and that was always a difficult position for me because when I was visiting there because people just assumed I was part of the UK kind of initiative so right. to speak um you know I'm kind of on the wrong side on this so that was always kind of slightly awkward but 
Yeah, I mean, you see France getting kind of interested and occasionally, I know shortly after I came back from Armenia last year, Nancy Pelosi went to visit Yerevan, which I thought was quite interesting, quite unusual. But there's just not enough cohesion, I think, amongst nations to say this is a fight that we want to have. And the world narrative is that um, Artsakh has always been part of this sort of Republic of Azerbaijan. Um, which is which is inaccurate, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Artsakh has never been part of sovereign Azerbaijan, even since ni- 1918, when Azerbaijan was created as a territory within, you know, unfolded in USSR two years later. Um, Artsakh was uh, an autonomous oblast within it. And that's that's the narrative that Azerbaijan's sort of massive lobby power and, and public relations has been able to convince the world this sort of this uh, fictitious uh, narrative, which is well, unfortunate. They, yeah, I mean, their PR uh, throughout the years has been way, way ahead of Armenians. I mean, it's been really successful in the way that they have manipulated other governments. And you'll be familiar with the whole fake Hajalu genocide, as they like to call it, right. in 1992. And that was one of the things that I worked on at some length with colleagues in NASA to try and understand more about what actually happened around that event and to try and understand how that narrative worked. Because it's, it felt to me that there was so much that was mutually con- contradictory about it. And I did write an article, which is on the same website as my other, uh, about the lies and all the source material for the article was Azerbaijani source material quite deliberately because I didn't want it to be Armenian material because they would just say well obviously you would uh, say that and if you understand having visited the villages and uh, Agdam and the villages between Agdam and Kharjala um, and so on and you get a sense of how it might have worked and you see the videos that were taken and how they were portraying certain things clearly in the wrong place, because if you understand the geography, you can see where it's supposed to be taken. And um, that whole thing developed over time. And now, certainly a few years ago, then quite a number of developing nations were being encouraged to recognise the this genocide uh, on the back of healthy grants and support from Azerbaijan on on economic fronts and yeah with caviar diplomacy and yeah yeah I mean money from the Azerbaijan laundromat yeah they encouraged Mexico to uh, recognize this genocide as being true and they they put up a a monument in one of the parks within Mexico City and I contacted the Mexican embassy in London and asked them to invite me down so I could explain to them why this wasn't true why the whole narrative why the, what they were being presented just wasn't sensible meaningless and i was trying to do that with other people but i didn't, i'm not sure how successful it was although those monuments have been removed so i i'm not sure i can claim You've anything about that in particular is a classic case of that whole so-called genocide which is clearly a kind of a way of poking at the armenian genocide on something that was uh completely fabricated by the Azerbaijanis in the years following February 19th. Yeah, they're very good at using offense as defense. 
uh, in their strategy yeah. and and just coming up literally with lies. And it's sometimes far more difficult <laughs> to actually combat like a, like a really out of this world kind of a lie and try to disprove it that's yeah. outrageous than most other things. Um, it's just absurd. I mean, the narrative now that Aliyev is using is part of Armenia is ancient Azerbaijani land. Um, I mean, yeah. it's just so absurd. I mean, Azerbaijan, a nation that as a sovereign nation has been around since 91, as a territory has been around since 1918, is mm. trying to claim that a nation like Armenia that's been around for thousands of years, there are historic records and there's yeah. like monuments and churches and cemeteries all over it, that somehow Azerbaijan has claims to it. I mean, it's just such an absurd... Of course, part of it is to brainwash his people, you know, that, that he's been uh, able to do very well with armenophobia and such. But you, you've done some you know incredible work i mean going to the the mexican embassy in london that's just uh that's just uh incredible uh, if you're just tuning in this is the blunt post with vic on uh kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host vic jerami and you are listening to my interview with russell pollard who has been telling us about his experiences in artsakh formerly known as nagarno-karabakh and Armenia, as well as Britain. The recognition of, I mean, I've always been disappointed that uh, UK is one of the few remaining mm. uh, major nations that has not recognized the Armenian genocide, despite uh, various uh, British people having witnessed it when it did happen. And of course, we know the the politics around it, catering to, or, or, or pandering, I should say, to uh, Turkey and oil-rich uh, Azerbaijan and all of that. Is there any hope there in the in the British Parliament? Because I don't really see much. No, no, I, I can I do. I think you've you've summarised it uh, correctly, which is why why would the UK government, as, as a foreign policy foreign policy type initiative, um, disturb Turkey or Azerbaijan for that matter? What what's the upside for the UK to do that? And particularly with Turkey being part of NATO, potentially being closer to Europe, albeit we're not in it anymore, of course, but and and sort of prodding something that's a hundred years old in the minds of most people, I would say. I just don't see why they would do it. You know, I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even have any expectation that they would do it. But the and it, I mean, it clearly is very a, a massively sensitive subject for Turkey. And I can't remember whether, forgive me if, if this has already been sort of read, but um, one of the first, one of the ways in which I started to communicate within Derby, we have a Holocaust Memorial Day as a kind of UK kind of tradition around January the 27th, which was set up a few years ago, prim primarily to remember the Holocaust from the Second World War. But I joined the group in Derby, and in fact, 2015 was the first year I spoke, and I wanted to talk about the Armenian genocide and the group. Great, thankfully, said, so, "Well, yeah, you join the group and you can talk about it. You know, it'd be great to sort of broaden the perspective," um, which I did. And the day before I was due to speak, because I publicised it quite a lot, the mayor of Derby received a letter from the Turkish embassy, basically saying, to paraphrase, 
reconsider bringing up the subject because you're not in any way, you haven't got this right, it's not very good, it's not good for diplomatic relations. And for me at the time, initially, I was a little bit kind of slightly put out about it. And then because that was in the evening, I was due to talk. And I thought, well, actually, this is, they've done me a great favour. Because when you're talking to people in Derby, this is something, you know, we don't have our meetings in Derby, apart from the odd one or two students, I think. So when I'm talking to them about something that on the face of it happened hundreds of years ago, and you can say, but the, the embassy of the, in fact, the, the, the Turkish government has written to little old Derby to challenge our right to say what we want. Right. And so that's how relevant it is to today. It's not an historical subjects of, of interest to historians so so that was really powerful and, and for that matter when we passed the resolution not we i didn't but uh, <laughs> the council uh, on my request to recognize the independence of Artsakh, then the azerbaijani embassy was constantly contacting the leadership and they're beginning to wonder what they've done or what they what what's this pollard guy got us to do um, and they were ringing up about trade deals, about they might not get trade deals. So there's massive pressure being brought to bear on them to to withdraw the motion, which again, thankfully they didn't. But no, I don't think the the, the UK government would would do anything to recognise the genocide, the Armenian genocide. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard, photojournalist, writer, and an activist. You know, what's really unfortunate is, is, is this, and that's due to lack of politicians that are actual idealists that have some courage. You know, in with the 30 plus nations that have recognized the genocide, Turkey has done the same thing, right? Right before the vote, they have threatened, they have pulled their ambassador, they have said, we're not gonna do this, we're not gonna do that. Uh, more, most famously, they did that with France. But France did the right thing anyway. And guess what? It's also to Turkey's uh, benefit to not cancel those trade deals and this and that. And everything yeah. went ahead and, and everything was just fine. Of course, you know, and this has happened with, you know, it happened with the U.S. It happened with, uh, you know, so many other nations. I mean, Switzerland, for Pete's sake, right? The so-called neutral nation, which there's no such thing as being neutral. But I mean, Switzerland has recognized uh, the genocide. You know, I can't see what Turkey and Azerbaijan can do in any kind of a significant way uh, to yeah. the powerful British uh, government. Yes, they'll call their ambassador for a few months. They'll, you know, they'll moan and cry and this and that. But it takes it takes a few um, really powerful and uh, and and loud uh, members of uh, parliament to uh, do something like this and really like tell people this is a mutually beneficial relationship that we have with Turkey. Mm. You know, mm. it's not a one way thing. Same thing with Azerbaijan. I mean, Azerbaijan has used the UK as as kind of well Aliyev's, I should say. Aliyevs uh, have used the UK as like their their base for <laughs> their laundromat, their caviar mm. diplomacy headquarters, uh, and so on and so forth. But you know, it's uh, you know, it comes down to self interest for for individuals at least. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, well, Russell, before I let you go, 
Uh, is, is there anything significant in, in, in Britain? I mean, of course, aside from the coronation, but just anything that you have a, a strong feeling about, uh, you want to tell us? It's un very unusual times for us over here, notwithstanding the fact that the loss of the Queen, which is kind of an unusual thing, probably for a lot of other people to realise, but unless you're very old, uh, you will only have known about the Queen. And so that is an unusual, even if people are not particularly realists, that's a quite unusual thing for that figurehead, that, that sort of character to disappear, to, to die and pass and, um, and the great outpouring at the time. And I say that not because I'm particularly a royalist, but when you then lay that on top of the whole Brexit vote, which also is, is, like, is a major fracture in the way that we were engaging globally, I mean, I've watched many, many general elections and, and a lot of them go the wrong way and you think, well, okay, but in a few years' time, that'll all get corrected. I mean, I voted to to remain within the EU, as indeed a good proportion of what I would call sensible people did. And I think a lot of people voted for the wrong reasons. I know that people would then argue with me, that how do I know that, and so on. But but I remember on the morning that, that the result came through, as I felt deep feeling of sickness, almost nausea, because you know that you've now just like jumped out of the aircraft and the parachute's not really working very well. Yeah. We don't know how we're going to land, but there's no going back. And, you know, that's taken into, taken us into quite, quite different territory, I think. And whilst those people who championed it will say, don't worry about it, guys, it's all working really well. We all know it's not. And so, you know, I remember having conversations with friends in Artsakh when I first went out there. So, you know, the early 2010, 11, 12, about the way life was in the UK and so on. And if we had that conversation again, it will be quite a different place. And we've had the independence um, votes in Scotland, which isn't really going anywhere, but you get these, you know, it's quite a different, quite a different country mm -hmm. to, um, to the way it was such a short time ago. And... Yeah particularly Brexit, it's sort of self-imposed harm and it's, you know, a terrible situation from that point of view. But but going back to uh, the Queen, I suppose, from the point of view of being positive, we had the Jubilee in June of last year and that was fantastic from the point of view of bringing people together. So, you know, years, what well, felt like years at least, everyone was sort of locked up or a little bit kind of enshrouded with COVID and so on. And, um, you know, in the village I live in, we had a massive street party and it brought everybody together as massive events and allowed people to really communicate and get together again. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I'm not sure how much of all this is publicised well. But And one of the things I, just staying on the whole sort of side of it, one of the things I enjoy when I'm in Armenia is talking to particularly people who are more uh, students, how an English way of life is portrayed in Armenia and it's it's quite dated shall we say and uh, yeah. quite cute and twee as to the way that they think we operate and the way that we we all walk around with bowl hats and umbrellas and um yeah. all sorts of very quaint stereotypes but um but well, yeah. I, I watch a lot of uh I mean I primarily watch masterpiece um theater you know, from okay. Father Brown to Grantchester to uh, Downton Abbey and, and, and so many other shows. And I fantasize about living in, a, in an English village all the time. 
Uh, I like cold and I like rain and I like fog and 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 I just think but also Scotland too because I love Shetland you guys have definitely gone through it um, I was in London right after Brexit it was 2017 I believe and then you've had to deal with that the prime ministers COVID COVID hit uh, pretty, yeah. pretty hard one of the one of the nations that was hit really hard you've had the death of the queen some of the you know scandals in the royal family yeah, yeah. Hopefully the worst is behind you. Well, I hope so. But, um, but you know, I, I still reflect on this with some sense of proportion because it's still nothing compared to, well, I would say it's nothing compared to what we see about Ukraine, of course. Nothing at all. Sure. And it's one of the things I always, you know, annoys me when people feel that somehow we have issues here. Well, yeah, okay, but it's nothing compared to Ukraine. It's certainly nothing compared to those people who were living peacefully and legitimately in Artsakh and who can who either lost their properties in, in November 20 or subsequently had to be, be refugees. And, um, I, you know, I, I can't even begin to sort of see the two together, really. You know, ours is self-imposed harm and, you know, there's enough people... But people suffer anyway, right? I mean, average yeah. uh, Brit that didn't have... Uh, didn't have uh, control over the votes too much, uh, has suffered too, and their inflation is is causing a lot of suffering to British people. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a cost of living crisis. Energy bills are going up. Food prices are going up yeah. more so than other G7 countries. So some of this, I think, is related to Brexit. I think probably a lot of it is related to Brexit because getting across the border, trade across the border, is quite different. So there are a lot of people. I mean, when I explain to friends living in Armenia that, uh, and one of my friends I hope will be coming over um, in the next month, and so I'll be able to show her English villages and see how life is over here. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on uh, KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Russell Pollard, who has been telling us about his experiences in Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and Armenia, as well as Britain. Russell, um, in case I forgot how to pronounce your last name uh, correctly, it's Pollard. Was that <laughs> no? Pollard, yeah, that's fine. Pollard, right? <laughs> yeah, you Pollard. have to do an affected English accent, I suppose, to... Um... <laughs> so Pollard. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Well, Russell, thank you for all that you do, your activism, your humanity, your writing. By the way, where can people sort of sample your work, read your work and such? Their website you can direct us to? Yeah. So the, the website is www.artsakh.org.uk. Artsakh.org.uk. Artsakh.org.uk. So that links you to... The writing I've done, but also the photographs as well. So um, I now realise I've got a record of a, a time of Artsakh, which, well, let's hope it is repeated again, but it's a very special time, special period in time that I uh, had the opportunity to record real life in Artsakh, not simple you know, tourism, journalism type thing, but real people doing real things. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Russell. Okay, no, thank you, Vic, uh, very much to, uh, to to you and uh, everybody 
who's listening and uh, wish everybody well. That was my interview with Russell Pollard. Russell, thank you very much for uh, your time, for being on the show and everything that you do. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.